Welcome to episode 37 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. Good relationships can actually enhance or minimize mental health problems in people. Hi, I'm Rowan, and today we're speaking with Professor Jerry Karansis, an associate professor and the director of the Science of Adult Relationship Laboratory at Deakin University. Professor Jerry is one of Australia's leading relationship experts, and he has edited and authored over 100 publications, including a handbook and co-authoring a text on relationships. Professor Jerry writes for The Conversation and Psychology Today, and he's regularly contacted by the media to discuss all matters on relationships. He's also one of the founders of Relationship Signs Online, which is a website that curates and delivers the science of relationships to target the needs of relationship counsellors and the general public. Today's podcast is brought to you by TalkLink.com.au, a modern and approachable mental health directory helping Australians connect with the right mental health practitioners. All of the practitioners, that's psychologists, psychotherapists and counsellors, are available to see clients straight away, so there are no waiting lists. They're all independent, licensed and insured, and available for online or in-person consultations. The great thing about TalkLink is that you can see a short video of the therapist to get to know them a little, check out their training and experience, as well as their pricing in a transparent way to decide if this is someone that you would like to connect with. Okay, let's dive in. I wanted to start with right where we're at in the middle of lockdowns and COVID and being in Victoria, we've probably seen some of the worst lockdowns in the world, right? Indeed we have, yeah. Yeah, how is that affecting relationships and what are you seeing out there? So it's a good question. It's a question that I've been asked quite a bit over the last 12 months, as you can imagine. Um, So we have to be a little bit careful in terms of what it is that we say about relationships and COVID, because we're only now starting to see some decent evidence come out now. What we did see at the beginning of the pandemic was this huge run on of both commentary and research starting up where there was an urgency to get out opinions, advice, data. My concern was all along, as some others have said, is as much as we need to get evidence out, we need to do it well, we need to do it properly, and we need to give some time course to this, meaning that we need to track couples for a little bit of time to see what's going on. Otherwise, there's a chance that the kinds of things that we're saying and some of the claims that are being made don't hold. Let me give you an example. There were uh, particular reports that were coming out of China quite early about this significant increase in divorce rates, 30% increase in divorce rates, I think around March sometime after that very strict lockdown that China had employed, especially in the Wuhan region, as a function of um, the early stages of the pandemic. Can we turn around and categorically say that those trends have been seen elsewhere? No, we cannot. Data that we now have amassed, that we are in the early stages of analysing and analysing very, very carefully, uh, we are able to tell you that when you follow people for over six months during the pandemic, and what we do have is we have a natural experiment on our hands in the data that we were collecting here um, at Deakin University in the sense that we had people who were coming out of lockdown in other parts of Australia And we were doing the opposite here in Victoria. We were bedding down 
and getting ready for another round of lockdown that was going to last us through until I think it was close to October when it came to last year. When you look at the differences in, for example, people's relationship quality, and by that I mean how committed, how trusting, loving, satisfied they are in their relationships, we hardly see any difference between Victoria and the rest of the country for those who came into the pandemic with strong, high-functioning relationships. Not only do we see little by way of difference, all of them are reporting actually pretty high relationship quality, very high in fact. So despite the stress and the strains of the world, these couples, families have been able to weather the storm. That's not to say that there aren't blips. When we look at the data, it's not like it's a straight line. It's like a curve, like it waves. There's peaks and troughs, but the peaks and troughs aren't all that dramatic. However, when you look at those people who, from the outset, came into the pandemic with their relationships on somewhat shaky ground, you know, maybe they don't uh, go about um, dealing with conflict in the most constructive way. Maybe they are not the most effective kind of supporter of one another's needs. For those people, they were already lower when it came to their relationship quality, and it maintains uh, at that lower level throughout that period in the pandemic. Now, that's just one study. That, and, and again, the data is preliminary. But with my colleagues that I speak to in other parts of the world, I can't say that we're necessarily seeing the movements in people's relationship well-being that I think people would expect. As a relationship scientist, I'm not surprised by that at all. Completely not surprised. We have 20 to 30 years of pretty good data and pretty good models that have been developed pretty carefully to tell us that it's not just the stressors of the world that lead to massive declines in relationship quality. What it is, it's a mix of underlying vulnerabilities that people have that they bring into their relationships. It's about the mechanics or the way that they go about dealing with relationships in the now. What do they do on the ground that makes them work or makes them falter? In addition to the external stressors going on in our lives that affect the course of our relationships long-term, not only in terms of the quality of the, the relationship, but also the extent to which we stay together or we end the relationship over the course of time. Hmm. There was a great article um, that you wrote in conversation.com where you outlined some of your research and how you represent and measure relationships. And you talk about your model, the vulnerability stress adaptation model. And a lot of the language you've used right now speaks to that. And I, I really want you to dive into that. But just before we do, um, I have this big asterisk in my mind. You're talking about couples who are in a strong place or couples who are not how do you measure that and how would someone listening other than just their intuition be able to tell where they're at in that spectrum yeah so the crazy thing that i see out there a lot is there are so many so many online surveys that you can do right that are put out there by all kinds of people saying hey find out your personality type, find out whether you found the right partner, find out how good your relationship is. And everyone thinking that people are developing something new and innovative. From where I stand, there have been widely developed measures, actually pretty simple, pretty quick to complete, that can measure 
a person's relationship health with a romantic partner, for example, that have been around for, you know, last 20 years. And it basically gives you a, a score on this concept that we've already spoken about relationship quality. It can even break it down from the different facets of your relationship, how committed you are, how trusting, how, how loving, how passionate, how satisfied. So when we talk about how do we know, when we do our studies, we do uh, surveys right at the beginning, which give us like a baseline. They give us a starting measure of where uh, you know, couples or individuals are at. And that's what I'm talking about here. We use these measures, which are actually freely available that are out there that have been developed by relationship experts, highly reliable. And what we do is we get a sense right at the beginning, where is your relationship quality when you fill in these measures? And on the basis of that, we can already tell whether people look like they're in relationships that are of high quality, whereas those that are of poorer quality. Right. What, what's, a, what's a good test to take that's reliable and there are, there are a number that are out there um, that, you know, people can can get hold of. The, the challenge is knowing where to find them and how accessible it is that they are. Um, one of the ones that we use that actually has become very widely used is, is a bit of a mouthful. It's called the Perceived Relationship Quality Components Questionnaire, PRQC, right? Um, Basically, what it does is it breaks up relationship quality into those components or those domains, commitment, trust, love, passion, satisfaction, and like. And basically, it's, it's an 18-item scale, and it takes you minutes to fill it in, and you get a score between one and seven. It averages across. All items are rated on score one to seven, and you're basically, you're basically being asked questions that you agree or disagree on. In your, in your mind's eye, for example, how satisfied am I? in my relationship, how trusting am I am of my, my partner, how committed I am to my relationship and seeing it in the, you know, through to the long term, those kinds of things. Typically what we find in many of the samples that we look at, if you're talking about the general community, people tend to sit somewhere between, you know, five and, and six on a scale of one to seven. So they're actually regarding themselves as pretty, pretty highly satisfied. But of course, there are those people who tend to sit under that. And where we tend to become somewhat concerned is those who are sitting four and under, because that's actually quite a bit away from where general samples of those who are more satisfied are. What it tells us is that there are probably some risk factors. There are particular pain points in people's relationships that they need to attend to. Um, that's why looking at those different facets might be important because it might be one particular area where the couple feels uh, somewhat lower on. For example, although they might love their partner, there may be particular trust issues at play because of something that's happened, um, as an example. So they're the kinds of things that we're looking for, and these kinds of measures can, can help you to, to be able to, to look at that. There are some measures that are out there that, you know, what they measure primarily is just satisfaction how happy, how satisfied you are in your relationship, the extent to which your relationship meets your needs. The thing that we like about the measure that I was talking about before is that it goes beyond just satisfaction. How uh, There's more to relationships than just satisfaction. And that's what that is kind of getting at. So it gives people like a nice profile of where their relationship is at, at any given point in time. Like one thing that, that anyone can do is they can take it at one time point and then they can do it again at a later time point and see whether their relationship is tracking similarly or whether it's changed and maybe that can help give them some insight into what has shifted for them uh, maybe it can help solidify for them some of their own impressions that they have about their relationship it may also open them up to some blind spots one of the things that i do caution to people 
um, around, you know, doing these kinds of, you know, surveys is you just got to be a little bit careful that when you do them, that you're not opening up a Pandora's box where things that maybe you had blind spots about or particular concerns or worries you had that once you take a measure like this kind of confirms your suspicions, the question is where to next? And what I do find sometimes is that there are all these kinds of surveys online and what they do is that they provide you with some feedback or a score, but then you're kind of left hanging. Like what do you do once someone's thrown the grenade and said, oh, things aren't as good as you thought they were, see you later. So then the question is, well, what duty of care do we have around maybe what kind of referrals we have in place? You know, where can people go and get more advice? Where can they go get more help to be able to kind of work through the things that they're discovering? So I think we have a duty of care around that. So that's all I would say around cautioning people around using any of these measures and, you know, deciding on whether it is that they want to take them or not. Hmm. There you go. For those who dare, for those who are bold and brave, uh, Friday night, date night, uh, questionnaire time. So, <laughs> well, <it could> be. <laughs> if they want to open Pandora's box, uh, well, yeah, okay. yeah. So, um, Professor Jerry, can you take us through some of those elements of your, the model that you've created, the vulnerability stress adaptation model, uh, in conversation.com? Because I think w- when I read that, it, it gave me a lot of aha moments, and I'm sure for a lot of our listeners, it might help them unravel some of the complexity mm-hmm. that is a relationship. Right. So um, the first thing that I do need to say from the outset and full disclosure is it's not, it's not my model as such, this, uh, but it is a model that we've worked on, we've adapted, we've recently written more about and extending this particular model. Um, the model actually has a really long history, which is why I like it so much. The model was developed back in 1995 by two very well-known relationship scientists, Tom Bradbury and Benjamin Carney. The model kind of came out of them surveying the literature and trying to understand how it is that couples change and how do they remain the same over the course of time and having the full awareness that no one thing is going to explain everything about a relationship. Now, that sounds fine on the surface. Um, People go, well, of course, it's not just one thing. But the $64 question is, well, what things matter if it's not one thing what things matter and what are the things we should pay attention to versus the things that we shouldn't. The other question around it is how do we kind of make sense if there's a lot of things at play? How do we make sense uh, around all of these factors? How do we don't become so confused about all the ingredients that go into a relationship or we become so overwhelmed that we go, this is all too hard. I don't know where to start in terms of how to make my relationship work or as a researcher, I don't know where to start as to what I should research. Let's just give up now and go home. Mm -hmm. So the model is very powerful in that way because it helps to bring sense to what seems like a a sea of madness in some ways. The other important aspect of the model is that it brings together particular factors that also speak to uh, the kind of enduring challenges that people may have across their lives that can infiltrate into their relationships, such as mental health issues, past relationship insecurities that they may have that they bring into a current romantic relationship that can play out in ways that can complicate relationships. Um, it's probably worth saying just a couple of things around kind of relationships and mental health, maybe while we, we, uh, we are talking about vulnerabilities and mental health, which is something that I get asked about a, a lot, and especially kind of in the current times of the pandemic, which is where in, in, in research that we currently have under review, we found that, uh, you know, uh, social restrictions are associated with negative 
um, impacts on people's mental health. That may not seem surprising, but actually those social restrictions affect different mental health symptoms differently. Stress is affected early on when lockdown comes in. Um, anxiety seems to be more pronounced when um, social restrictions are somewhat more relaxed. Whereas depressive symptoms seem to be higher in terms of very harsh strict lockdown. So this work is currently uh, under review right now, but one of the things that we become interested in is, well, given that in lockdown, you're spending all of your time with your romantic partner and family members that are within the home, but at the same time, you're disconnected from your wider social network. How do those relationship dynamics play out in people's mental health? And that's actually something that's been studied for a very long time. There are one of two ways that you can think about the nexus between relationships and mental health. On the one hand, you can turn around and argue, well, is it that mental health is associated with people's relationship quality? That is that if you have greater mental health concerns, you have a harder time doing relationships well. And because of that, you experience poorer declines in relationship quality, or you're just never quite as satisfied. That's one option you could ask. The other kind of question you could ask is, well, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe that if you are in enduring but dissatisfying relationships, where your needs for love, comfort, and affection are not met, and those needs are universal to all of us, maybe those are pretty powerful predictors of mental health. The reality is, is in the research that's been done over the last 30 years, asking those exact questions and developing models to test that suggests that there is evidence for both. It depends on where in the chain you pick things up, right? Are you picking people up when they're first getting into relationships and have existing mental health issues that they bring into those relationships? Or are people in relationships for some time where the relationship ebbs and flows, it's been on a steady decline in terms of the way that it's been functioning. And because of that, people are experiencing negative mental health symptoms, maybe increases in depression, anxiety, and the like. There is evidence for both. But generally speaking, at least to this point in time, when you review all of the evidence, it seems to be that there's a stronger association for relationship difficulties impacting more so on mental health than the other way around. The other thing that I think is important to, to highlight and the power of relationships here is studies that have been done with twins. And I can't say that there are many around. It's really, really hard to do twin studies. But those that have been done help us to be able to unpack how much of the kind of mental health difficulties that people experience have a genetic element versus a kind of social environmental element. And I think one thing that's interesting to highlight, again, there's not many studies, but I think those studies are very important in what they tell us, is that typically the likelihood that you are going to experience some kind of mental health out, uh, mental health difficulties as a function of some kind of underlying genetic factors that may have lineage in, in one's family of origin is around 20 to 30%. If you look at relationship factors and people having had a history of relationship difficulties, and how that's associated with mental health outcomes, it sits at around 60%. So it does tell you the power of the social environment. It's not one or the other. We can never say that. That's a very naive uh, kind of uh, assumption to have. And it's also uh, an erroneous conclusion to reach. But what it does emphasize is the power of relationships in keeping us afloat in terms of our mental health and well-being. Hmm. 
Now, the thing that I do like about the vulnerability stress adaptation model is that it synthesizes all of the kind of different moving parts that can make relationships grow and become stronger over time. Those that may unfortunately decline over time and those relationships where despite the struggle of the world around us, where, you know, we are feeling strained, we are feeling challenged. Things are not always going as smoothly with our partners and in our families. There are conflicts. We are stressed out at the minute. Nevertheless, we are able to weather the storm. And when one partner looks at the other, they turn around and say, well, despite all the kind of difficulties that we're going through and that, yes, things could be going better, I'd rather still be soldiering on in this crazy world with you than without you. So what the vulnerability stress adaptation model tells us, which is where it gets its name from, is that there are three major factors that predict to how satisfied the quality of our relationships and also the likelihood that our relationships are going to be such that we will stay together over the long haul, or there may be a risk that we may not. So the vulnerability stress adaptation model tells us that the first major kind of category that predicts relationship quality and outcomes is what we call enduring vulnerabilities. So these are maybe personality characteristics, traits, a history of you know, relationship difficulties in our family of origins, you know, maybe experiences of abuse, trauma that stay with us for the long term. Yeah. They, they may vary in terms of their severity, but nonetheless, they're part of us. They make up who we are. And that these enduring vulnerabilities can have a negative effect on how we go about trying to make relationships work. That's the first thing. The second thing is stressors. And in particular, in the vulnerability stress adaptation model, we talk about external stressors. A nice example of that is like what's currently going on in the pandemic and the world around us. Uh, not only are the stressors around kind of the health concerns uh, around the uh, virus itself. But it's also around the implications and the stressors that are brought on by heavy social restrictions. You know, the way that we are able to manage kind of our work lives at home that collides with kind of family time. Uh, the stressors around kind of being able to separate work from family life. For some people out there, some of the real impertinent stressors that they experience are issues around financial security and job security right now hmm. for others it may be that the way for them to cope with these stressors has been turning to substance use of different types uh, there are those who are already on the poverty line so for them it's not even about financial security it's really about them just having a place to sleep so for some people the stressors are very pervasive when you look across the spectrum of what people experience but those stressors and what they are and, they've, and how severe they are can tax how we go about doing relationships. Like if you think about when relationship problems arise, the more stressed we are, we find it harder to be able to regulate ourselves. We find it harder to keep our emotions in check. We find it harder to be able to think clearly because there's so much energy that goes into trying to deal with stress. So much of our attention and our focus is on keeping that at bay or trying to problem solve that. 
that the minute that there's a relationship stress or someone is asking for something of us, it feels like it's too much. And I think we're actually seeing quite a bit of that right now in the current pandemic. Things that would normally seem as not a big ask from a partner or from a family member or something that would seem quite easy to do, all of a sudden just feels that much harder or you can't do it as effectively or you get more frustrated than you ever did. Okay, that's the external stressors talking. They're there, they're present, they're enduring and you just can't hold them at bay as well. Mm. But then there's the other side of the vulnerability stress adaptation model. So, so far we've spoken about vulnerabilities in brief, stressors in brief, but then there's the adaptation component. A good way to think about the adaptation component is it's the positives that we bring to our relationships. And by positives, I don't just mean that we have humor and that we have a good time. Sure, that's part of it. By, by positives, we mean the ability of couples to be able to communicate and to, to engage in conflict in constructive ways their ability to be able to perspective take, their ability to be able to be empathic with one another. You know, empathy is really about your ability to be able to sit in another person's shoes, to be able to understand how it is that they feel and how it is that they think about a particular issue, et cetera. It's a very, very you know, important factor um, in the way that we go about making sense of how our person is feeling. And importantly, when we're in tune with them, it sends a very powerful message that we get where you're at. We understand your pain. We understand your concerns. And I'm here with you. I'm, I get that. I'm validating your worries, your concerns, or where you're at. What goes along with that is how supportive we are of our partners. Partner support is a really, really powerful factor in the way we go about doing relationships. The thing that I find very interesting is that often when we talk about the importance of support, everyone says support is good. More support is better. When you're in times of trouble, Turn to people for support. And I don't quite agree with that. I don't quite have agree with that because we're very clear on what the evidence tells us about support. More support is not better. It all comes back to the quality of that support. If you turn to someone with particular emotional difficulties, worries, concerns, maybe your own mental health concerns, but what they do is the way that they go about trying to help you is they only exacerbate your worries. They make you feel more incompetent. They, they provide you with sympathy where you feel like you can't deal with the issue. They say, oh, wow, this is really bad what you're talking about. Oh, my goodness, you need help immediately. Or, oh, this is so bad, you'll never recover from this. That kind of support isn't particularly helpful. If anything, and what the evidence tells us is that that kind of support where it minimizes your sense of competence, where it makes the problem out to be worse than what it is, only makes you feel worse you come away feeling worse from the support you received. And you don't know why. It's an amplification of that negative voice in your head. Completely. Mm. What being effective as a support provider is being in tune with what the problem and the issue is for the person and to be able to respond in a way that is aligned with what it is that they need. So what that means is that being an effective support provider is asking yourself a series of questions. A, do they need my help? B, what do I need to do to meet their needs? Sometimes what happens in relationships is when people provide support, they're providing it from their perspective. And often that starts with the following. You know what you should do? If I was you, this is what I would do. Mm. So often what it is, they are, they are thinking that they are giving support, but it's solely coming from their perspective. 
They're wanting to get across how either they're right, only looking at it from their point of view, and it doesn't meet the needs of the other person. So coming back to this notion of what is an adaptive quality, an adaptive quality in relationships, and when couples do support well, they're typically not coming from the perspective of what I need to do for you from my perspective. They sit back, they perspective take, they engage in empathy and they go, okay, what it is that you need? For example, maybe a partner is engaging in self-doubt over a challenging task that's coming up. So what the other needs to do is say, okay, what is it that they need here? Do they need sympathy? Do they need me to turn around and uh, say, they're there, uh, I know this is really hard. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. It's okay. Or do they turn around and say, you know what? I think what my partner really needs here is they really need for me to champion their abilities and their competencies. I need to turn around and say, I know this is going to be hard. Anyone in your shoes would find it hard. I would find it hard. But you know what? I know that you can do it. I know that you can do it. And I know that if you take the chance, no matter how this plays out, you're going to be proud that you had a go. Or maybe the likelihood of success is high and you'll regret it if you don't take a chance. I don't care how it plays out for you in terms of how I'm going to judge you. It's got nothing to do with that. But it is important that you have a go at this because I know you've worked for it for a long time. Now is not the time for self-doubt. So you can see what I'm doing there is I'm trying to kind of enhance the person's capabilities. I'm trying to strengthen the self-belief because maybe that's what really matters. Yeah, I, I don't even have a task, but after hearing you say that, I want to go do something. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Well, that, okay. So you get the, you get the point. That, that was great. Thank you, great. For, the, thank you uh, for the affirmation in return. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I mean, these sorts of conversations are tough though, right? Like it's really, really, I, I, I'm uh, coming up to 10 years marriage and, you know, right. often you look at your partner and you're like, ah, what do you need? And it's, it's hard to read that. So you just raised a really good point. So I've been with my wife now for uh, going on uh, 20, 21 years and we've been together 23. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh the thing that I would highlight there is just because we've been together that long doesn't mean that at times you're not at a loss at what your partner needs. Mm. In really hard trying times where you yourself are stressed and taxed, sometimes you put your hands up and you go, I, I don't know what you need right now. But that's probably very important because another thing about being sensitive and responsive is you don't always have to know the answers. You don't always even have to always get it right all of the time. I think some people out there, some self-help gurus out there say you always got to kind of show up. You always got to kind of be the perfect partner or aspire to be the perfect partner. Last time I checked, all of us are imperfect. None of us are a machine. None of us are a robot. And we all have our own worries, our own concerns, our own pressures. And sometimes we don't know what to say to our partners. And sometimes we don't have the energy. Sometimes we are tapped out. But that's something that you can say, I think, in an honest relationship. You can say, you know what? Um, I don't know what it is that you need right now, but I'm happy for us to kind of talk about what it is that you need. And all I'm going to do is just listen. I, I, I don't have the answer right now. You can even turn around and say, I know this is important to you and we haven't found the answer yet, but maybe we're not looking at it the right way. Maybe we can figure it out together. Um, some might say, oh, that sounds a little bit, uh, you know, fanciful in the way you would discuss it. No, it's true. But I want to have you a tattoo say, now. 
I, I don't yeah. even, again. <laughs> you don't have to know the answers. You don't have to have the answers to everything. And I don't, I think some problems that we come across in our relationships or challenges we have, we're both going through them for the first time. Like the first time you enter into parenthood, when you decide you're going to transition into living together, maybe when you're in the later stages of life, when your child moves out of home and you don't know, kind of know what to do with yourselves. When one is heading into retirement and the other one isn't. Maybe when you're struggling with your job and you don't know what to do. Maybe when someone has lost their job and now you don't know where the next paycheck is coming from. And it's the first time that you've ever, you know, been made redundant. These are really difficult issues that couples have to deal with. And again, when you go through them for the first time, there's no playbook you're going to read about. And you don't need to go searching for somewhere else to find the answer. Just you and your partner need to problem solve it the best way you can. And that problem solving isn't going to be right in the first place. There might be mistakes made along the way, but the difference is that when both people are committed to kind of working it out together and they really do deep down have a deep concern about their partner's well-being, I think the other partner gets it. And there's some tolerance that if you don't get it right, because they go, you know what, you're trying here and I know it's coming from a good place and you don't always get it right, but then neither do I. So this elaborate discussion we've had about kind of social support is a meaningful one because, as I said, more support doesn't mean better outcomes. It's the type of support. It's about what it is that people need. And when you don't know what a person needs, having conversations about what it is that someone wants is really, really important. And you don't need to have the answers at the end of that conversation, but it gets things going, right? You know, sometimes what you can communicate is, is I feel tired and I don't feel I have a lot of energy to support you right now. Don't take that, that I don't care, because that's another thing. A partner might interpret that and say, ha, you don't care. When it might be, well, it's not that I don't care, but um, I don't have a lot in me right now. And maybe that opens up a conversation with a guy, what do you mean you don't have in you? Well, actually, I'm struggling myself right now. Maybe they may not say it like that, but the partner picks up and goes, there's something wrong with my partner. There's something that isn't quite right. Maybe the stresses of the world are exacerbating their own anxieties. Maybe they just don't have as much in the tank right now. They don't have those regulatory capacities. Okay, a conversation gets started. And sometimes what you can have is you can have a partner who may be dealing with their own woes switch gears. They turn and go, wait a minute. Uh, actually, you need some help. And they actually, you might be surprised that they step up. It doesn't always happen. Like couples, couples are different, but that can happen in some instances. So coming back to this notion of adaptations, it's, it's about how you support one another. It is also about the kind of effort you put into trying to have positive experiences. And right now in COVID, it's really hard. What was once a simple positive experience, going and watching a movie, going out on a date night. Please explain to me how that's happening right now for those of us experiencing social restrictions. It just ain't happening. People are simply turning around and saying, I wish I could just get out and just kind of go beyond 5Ks and just, you know, go somewhere where we can sit down and just kind of relax. That is a positive experience. And the reason that I raise that is because one of the things that keeps relationship buoyant is the ratio of positive to negative experiences. People think that it's just the presence of bad stuff that means that relationships go downhill. Like, for example, um, the, the vulnerabilities that we were talking about, lots of vulnerabilities, lots of stressors and, and couples not doing the good things well, fighting a lot, getting angry, not being supportive, bad outcomes. And yes, to an extent that is, that is quite true. 
But what we also know from the data is that it's the absence of positive things that can also affect relationships. And by positive things, we're not talking about grand gestures of positivity, going on that exciting trip on the weekend away. But those things do matter. But even the simple things, just sitting down and watching a funny movie and just relaxing, right? Uh, something very nice happened just the other day with my wife and I. We were kind of in the kitchen. We kind of looked at each other. And we just gave each other a hug. And it was just one of those hugs where there was no discussion. And what I realized at the time when we both had that, that, that hug is we both kind of just relaxed. The tension we were holding just kind of went. And we were very quickly interrupted by our puppy and our daughter. Um, and that kind of happens and the moment is gone. But at that moment in time, the world kind of stopped. It sounds a little bit maybe romantic and fanciful. And I wish we had more moments like that in the craziness of life right now. But those things do matter. Now, why is it that I'm re relaying that message? And that happened three days ago. Because it had an effect, right? And it was nothing, it was nothing particularly grand. So, you know... Positive things really do matter in relationships. And in the current lockdown time, you know, one thing that I would say to couples is think about what simple gestures you can, you can make to one another to kind of keep relationships kind of buoyant. You know, you might not be able to have a date night, but can you kind of, you know, uh, have, a, have a special meal together or something or go about things in a, in a way where you can reimagine a positive experience that you would typically do outside, do it inside. You know, do something, you know, with, with your kids, for those of you that have, you know, uh, your kids in a way where, you know, uh, you know, you play board games, for example, I know that some families now have developed, you know, kind of board game night or they have their movie night, etc. where once upon a time they weren't. And those kinds of things are helping. Maybe for some, it's just sitting down on the couch and just having five minutes where you can kind of just chat about some stuff. Because I think sometimes people also become more insular and more withdrawn as they're dealing with their own stressors and their worries. And they don't even realize that they're becoming disconnected from those around them. Yeah. Is it a little bit like a bank account where in good times you can build up all these great experiences and then when you have these stresses, you can maybe draw down more than you put in at that time because you've got this bank, this history, this background of all these positive experiences or do you sort of have to have them fairly equal most of the time? Uh, uh, no, and the evidence uh, you know, varies in terms of what people say, but what people typically say is you actually, if we're talking about the ratio of positive to negative kind of experiences, you actually need way more positive experiences to, to offset negative experiences. So you need less negative experiences, more positive. The reason that that is kind of highlighted is because you know, the way that we have evolved as a species in, in order to maintain our survival is to be particularly vigilant to threat, dangerous things around us. And we need to avoid those things to keep us safe. Positive things we don't need to worry about. They give us the great boost. They make us feel rewarding and we seek them out, but there aren't the same kind of consequences to those things as what there are negative things. Essentially in survival times, in prehistoric times, negative things meant death. And to be honest, when you think about currently in COVID times, all of the kind of concerns and worries and the kind of social restrictions, the public health response is around minimizing negative health consequences and ultimately death in people. So we have evolved to, to privilege threat in our minds in the way that we waited. So because of that, you don't need as, as a larger bank of negative experiences to have a powerful effect on us. But because of that, you need that to be offset by more positive experiences as such. So 
you know, all of these things kind of come into play in terms of these kind of adaptive qualities. And the last thing I'd say about adaptive qualities is this notion of conflict, because conflict is a big one. One of the biggest issues that couples come into therapy for is because of conflict issues, communication issues, etc. I think that one of the, the myths that's out there is that the more that couples uh, engage in conflict, the worse their relationships. And that is not true. The evidence tells us that it's not about how much you engage in conflict. It's about the way that you go about dealing with conflict. In some ways, it's similar to what we were talking about with social support. More social support doesn't mean better outcomes. It's the quality of the social support you get, right? So we see the same kind of message coming through in the conflict literature. So what we do know is that couples that engage in more constructive ways of dealing with conflict, and you might go, well, what does that mean? Well, uh, it means that they can maybe talk about things in a more calm or a reasonable way. Maybe it is that they can see each other's perspective and they acknowledge each other's perspective. They acknowledge the argument that a person has. It's probably also that people can admit when they're wrong. It also means that if it's a particular problem that's important to both people, they kind of rethink the problem and talk about it as a kind of we problem rather than it's your problem versus it being my problem. We realize that it's a problem that affects both of us. So then you kind of develop this kind of shared goal around how you're gonna deal with it. Now, I'm sure that many people listening out there would say, yeah, right, like people do that. Um, I don't argue like that. You know, we, we get angry, we become hostile. There's no way that in the heat of the moment, I can turn around and be reasonable or talk about things calmly. And I would say, yeah, that's true. But you're not one of those couples that does things in the constructive way, is what I would say. There is a bank of couples out there that do that. The caveat that I would put on it is that those couples that are in well-functioning relationships and typically have these high adaptations like constructive couple conflict doesn't mean that they do it well all the time. They don't. There are times where conflict doesn't go so bad, but there is, a, there is an important but. The important but is that if the conflict escalates and they become quite angry with one another, maybe they even say hurtful things. There's an apology that comes even after the fact. They might you know, kind of withdraw, go into several parts of the house. One says, okay, I'm going for now. We're not getting anywhere here. You know, damn you or whatever else it is they said. Oh, fine. It's always my problem, right? And it ends like that. But then what happens is a bit of time that passes and, you know, the couple kind of looks at each other and says, look, that got out of hand. Uh, and then there's an apology. I'm really sorry for what I said. And then there's an explanation that follows. I'm, I'm really sorry because maybe it's because of some of the stressors that the family is dealing with. Maybe it's because of lockdown. We haven't had our normal time to decompress. You know, I was stressed about what was going on at work. You were stressed, you know, at what was going at work for you. Um, we tried to have, you know, if we had children, for example, we're trying to homeschool them at the same time. Couldn't concentrate. We come out, we blame one another for stuff that actually it's not worth blaming each other for. And things escalated. And that was crazy. Like we're, we're both feeling at the same. Well, guess what you've just done? You've both just turned around and given explanations for your behavior. There's, there's an apology. And then everything just gets toned down. It's like, all right, so you're not attacking me. It was because you were getting upset and we're both frustrated about the same thing. That's just one example, right? There's many ways that that can play out. But it doesn't matter what shape or form it takes. Typically what happens is that those couples have an apology. They engage in some kind of constructive behavior to move the couple forward in some positive way and to say, we, you know, we shouldn't have gone about it that way. They may even rethink the problem and the issue and actually then come up with something constructive. 
those couples that don't do that, they stay in that pattern. And the difference is that that couples that are more constructive, most of the time, their kind of conflict interactions are constructive. They're not perfect all the time, but the majority of the time, it kind of goes well, even over really difficult issues. And they don't need to have a solution to that issue at that time, but it kind of ends and they go, you know, we need to discuss this some more. We're not finding any solutions here, but let's, you know, we need to talk about it again, you know, or we need to go find out. We need help from other people. You know, we need to go speak to either some professionals or whatever the issue may be, right? For those couples that don't do that, their typical pattern is one that's highly destructive. It's like they don't even know how to bring it down. The most common conflict pattern that we see in relationships that is destructive and leads to no positive resolution is one that we call demand withdrawal. That is where one person in the relationship is demanding of the other partner and in response, the other partner withdraws. And let me give you examples of what that looks like. So demand typically includes two aspects. One is where you engage in kind of these demanding, critical, blaming, accusatory statements of your partner. You're an idiot. You're stupid. How could you be so thoughtless? Only, only a moron would do that. You notice the insults that I'm, that I'm leveraging out here, right? They are essentially character assassinations. What I am communicating is you are the fault. You are the cause of the problem. You are to blame. It's something wrong with you. It's got nothing to do with me here. You are the problem. Another side that we can engage in demand that isn't as blatant as that, it's not as obvious, is what we call pressure for change. It can be more indirect. It might be something like, oh, maybe, maybe uh, you know, I wouldn't just be feeling so sad right now if uh, you didn't spend as much time working. Now, you notice there's a message there, but you got to kind of decode it. You're saying, so wait, are you saying that the reason that you're sad is because I'm not spending enough time with you because of my work? Is it that you think I put more into work than I do into you? Can you see now how I've got these questions? But ultimately, what happens to the partner? The partner now is aggrieved by that. I turn and say, uh, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Now, other ways we can also do that is we can guilt the partner. And in some ways, what I just said was a bit of a guilting statement. But, you know, there are, you think about guilt is a very powerful way of getting people to do things. But there are extreme costs to guilt because guilt is one of the most negative emotions that we can experience. And if we stay in a constant state of guilt, you know, it's associated with all kinds of, you know, further, uh, you know, kind of mental health issues and physical health issues, right? Uh, we have all these kind of stress autoimmune responses that, you know, if they remain chronic are not particularly good for us. Guilt doesn't seem like a good tool to impact change. It doesn't. Is it? No, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't at all. Um, it's highly destructive, just, just, like you, just like you're highlighting now. Um, other ways that we can go about managing pressure for change is we can kind of be somewhat positive. We can say, oh, I really, uh, you know, I really appreciated the way you went about doing that. Oh, it was great that you helped out with, with this task for a change. It was, it, you know, um, that made such a big difference. Now you might go, oh, there's nothing wrong in what that was said there. That, that was appreciative. And it is. But the person saying it might also have another motive in mind. I'm telling you this in a positive way because I want you to do more of that. I want more of it. I, I'm, not, I'm not connecting that one. Was that one okay? Because that made me feel uncomfortable. That was a little bit backhanded because you said for a right. change. right. Exactly. So it's still a pressure. I'm saying I would like more of that, but notice that the tone was po was somewhat positive. So on face value, you think, I think that's a compliment, 
but then you still feel uncomfortable because I add on to that for a change. That's exactly what I'm trying to do there. I'm not wanting to come out and directly say, you should do more of this. I want more of it. Notice that that was very negative and is an attack on you. I reframed it. I said, oh, I'm so appreciative that you did it this time. Um, but uh, by then adding on to that for a change, I'm saying, because you don't normally do it. Yeah. You see? So all of these are different examples of this demand element of this conflict pattern that I'm talking about, right? So all of these things are all about the same thing. I want you to do things that I am largely not happy with or that I want you to do more of. When the partner picks up on that and they realize that it's some kind of a criticism or an attack on them, a response that the partner can give is, hang on a minute, I don't like that. So what they do is they withdraw from the partner. They actually don't engage necessarily more in the conflict. They pull back. They may stonewall, meaning they, you know, the, the person is attacking them, criticizing them. What do you got to say for yourself? And they say nothing. It's like looking at a stone wall, a brick wall. Doesn't say anything, doesn't do anything, right? What they could also do is that they may that, that person who's being attacked may try to change the conversation. They may make it about something else. They may turn around and avoid and turn around and say something like, we're not going to talk about this. You've raised this before. We're not getting anywhere. I'm shutting it down. They may get up and leave. They may physically leave the room. So, you know, that is a common pattern that we see in relationships. One person demands, the other person withdraws. It's not the only pattern, but it's the most common. Your point is neither sides of those two reactions are healthy. Well, they don't because, okay, the, the person who is doing the attacking feels unheard because the other person is withdrawing. So the withdrawing person sends the message to their partner. Uh, I don't care. I don't want to listen to this. Your grievances are not important to me. So then that person demands more. It escalates. And then the person who is being attacked withdraws because they say, all you ever do is criticize me. All you ever do is hurt me. All you ever do is say that anything I do is wrong. So I'm not going to talk. I'm tired. I'm tired of it. I don't want to make this a bigger thing now. So that's one example of one of the conflict patterns. The other very common one is that both of them attack each other. And that's called attack on attack or negative hostility. You know, one person engages in a criticism and then the other person returns fire. And they say, well, if you don't think I'm so perfect, let me just pull out the long list I have here of all of your imperfections and let me fire off at you. So these are the kind of destructive things that couples can do on a very regular basis. And none of those things lead to positive outcomes. Now, here's what we know coming back to the vulnerability stress adaptation model. What we know is that people that have particular vulnerabilities, such as either mental health issues, relationship insecurities from previous relationships, which is something that we study a lot in our lab, whether it be particular negative personality traits like being highly neurotic, uh, being somewhat aggressive, have an underlying kind of trait, aggressive nature. People bringing those vulnerabilities into relationships typically find it harder to do relationships well. They can't regulate their emotions as well. They find it harder to problem solve relationship difficulties. And also often some of these, uh, some of these people don't have good relationship experiences in the past that have taught them good ways on how to deal with things. Like a lot of the way we learn stuff is by watching how our parents did it, how other close others did it. We just don't have those experiences in our mind to draw on. Now, the challenge for those people that have those vulnerabilities is that when stressors come along, they increase the chance that those vulnerabilities negatively affect how we do relationships. 
we already have those vulnerabilities. So we're already a little bit in deficit on trying to make relationships work effectively. When you add the stress, it only increases relationship problems. Uh, this idea that, you know, we hear it and we especially hear it in the sporting context, uh, you know, pressure makes diamonds. From where I stand in relationships, I would say, no, pressure just causes more problems, you know, it causes, you know, strain issues, you know, stress is pressure. It makes it harder to do things, you know, and one of those things that can really make relationships challenged at times is in those tough times where it's hard to problem solve, the issues seem intractable. And when vulnerabilities are at play, it can make things more difficult. So then because those adaptations that we were talking about, constructive conflict behaviors, supportive interactions and the like, aren't as present in those relationships, relationship quality is down because partners don't see their relationships giving them what they want. And then over the course of time, those relationships can end. Some stay in those relationships. They stay in them, but they remain dissatisfying. And the kinds of things that might be keeping them in that relationship is what we often refer to as a as structural commitment. Fancy term of saying that there's different types of commitment. One kind of commitment that keeps us in our relationships is this kind of long-term view that I want to be with this person. I want to build a future. I want us to have goals together, you know, that we both work towards that are meaningful to both of us. That's one kind of commitment. The structural commitment is the kind of commitment where you now feel that you're kind of locked into the relationship and you can't get out. It might be that I feel like if I walk on the relationship, if I try to get out, there's going to be a lot of negative judgment on me from those around me. And I can't deal with the kind of social judgment that is going to be afforded to me. It might be that financially I'm going to be in big trouble. It might be that there are issues around custody with the kids and I have concerns about that. And there could be many, many other reasons, but because of those reasons, you know, people stay in those relationships. You know, I sometimes feel that some, some people turn around and say, when people are experiencing those kind of relationships, you should just get out. What are you in it for? Just leave. But if only it was so easy. When you look at the, the couples or the people that are struggling in those situations, it becomes really, really clear to them that they, they don't see a way out. Those barriers, those issues are, are really problematic to them. And it is a difficult place for them to be in, but, but those things are real. So some can stay in relationships for a long time, despite them not being uh, the best. The other thing that I would kind of highlight um, in terms of the, this kind of vulnerability stress adaptation model is there's the powerful role that the partner plays in the relationship. And I think there's a, we've already given a bit of a sense of that, but, you know, some people might have their own vulnerabilities, you know, they may have, you know, they come into their relationships where they may be higher on some mental health issues, such as depression, anxiety, et cetera. But remember that one of the things I said quite early on is that we know that there is good evidence to suggest that good relationships can actually enhance or minimize mental health problems in people. So, you know, there is some light at the end of the tunnel here because one of the messages that people might be getting is, oh my goodness, I, ha I already know I have some vulnerabilities here. The relationship is doomed, especially around mental health issues, around depression, anxiety, and stress. I mean, what, what happens here? Well, the reality is, is that you're probably going to have a harder time making relationships work to some extent. But if you are in relationships with people that are kind of those, those kind of loving, caring people that are there to want to make sure that they meet your needs, but also you're trying to do your best. There's a lot of potential there for the relationship to be very fulfilling, very satisfying. And in fact, people's mental health can improve as a function of that. You know, 
Because what the person does is the person can maybe help allay your anxieties or worries about something. I gave that nice example before. Let's say that you have someone who has chronic self-doubt about um, particular issues and whether, and chronic self-doubt, you know, is, is a particular characteristic that we see that people that may be higher in depression or higher in anxiety, et cetera. And maybe the chronic self-doubt is being exacerbated, maybe during a particular situation, such as a work situation where maybe you're going for a promotion. Maybe you're going to be, uh, maybe you're doing a big presentation. Maybe there's some major overhaul at work that's going to affect you in a particular way. And you have this chronic self-doubt and you're becoming very worried going into this meeting or at home, you're just kind of freaking out over it. And your partner knows this about you. And then your partner comes in knowing where you're at, knowing that you have these kind of vulnerabilities, but also appreciating that what is going on at work is pretty serious, comes in and helps to kind of downward regulate your kind of self-doubt and reminds you of the things that you've been good at, reminds you of the achievements that you've made, reminds you that you're a valued employee in the workplace. Or maybe the reason that you will put up for the promotion is because they only put up people that they know are really solid that they're going to get it. Or maybe the reason you're involved in this high-level meeting is because you know that they value your opinion. So you notice that what I'm doing here is I'm trying to say, hey, I appreciate that you're worried, but there's lots of reasons here why you shouldn't be. And, and I know you really well. So if I know you really well and I'm saying this, this is this is stuff that's important, you know, for you to hear. And um, you know, I'm trying to downward regulate them. And we know that partners can do that for one another. We call that a kind of stress buffering effect, where one partner's input helps to buffer the stress or the worries that someone else is experiencing. So that's why, you know, often when we think about relationships, we talk about, you know, partners being enemies, right? Uh, when there's conflict, um, they don't fight fair and they attack one another. But what we also know is that those couples that have been in relationships for a really long time, and I'm talking about the real experts, right? Those beautiful couples that you see that are holding each other's hand and they've been married for 50 years, right? And one of the things they talk about is, you know, we make each other laugh, coming back to the kind of positive things that we do. They'll say really simple things like we don't stay angry with each other for too long and we try to kind of work things out. We can't always, but we're trying to work things out. And the other thing is they say that we're, we're really good friends. Some will say that they're each other's best friends, but that's not the case for all. But we are good friends. So, you know, when we talk about being good friends, then we try to be an ally to one another. And we don't have to get it right all the time. But when we get it right most of the time, not only does it impact on giving us, you know, positive relationship experiences, the relationship quality is high, but it also does significantly affect our mental health. Even in times such as COVID, Right. If we come back to what I was talking about early on, even those who were experiencing high stressors around COVID, but had high relationship adaptations, good support processes, constructive ways of dealing with conflict, reported high relationship quality. They were able to weather the storm, despite what was kind of being thrown at them, which tells us a lot about the power of relationships, a how we do them. And if we do them well, the implications it has for our relationship well-being as well as our personal well-being. Yeah, and I think everyone would say, I want a healthy relationship and I want to be able to deal with conflict. How do you get better at fighting? <laughs> yeah. If you're in that specific dynamic, so one partner comes out, guns blazing, really accusatory, and the other one just stonewalls and walks away and both end up left, as you've described, feeling, well, what was the point of that? I'm still frustrated. People don't like conflict and often we'll do everything we can to avoid it. So how do you fight better, more constructively? 
Yeah, so there's a couple of things that I would say here. Now, the first thing I would say, if there's people that are listening here and really are stuck in that pattern, that pattern's been going on for a really long time and for years, uh, I'll be honest, you can give some tips, but I think talk is a little bit cheap in those instances, not meaning to, uh, to minimize what it is that, that I'm going to say and what the evidence tells us. But what I think is, if you continue to fight in a way that's not fair, you need a referee. And that referee probably will come in the form of a very experienced therapist, a couples therapist, because, you know, it's different when uh, you have someone who's able to come in as a kind of third person and able to observe the interaction and try and unpack what is going on for the couple. Because when couples are engaged in those kinds of conflict interactions, they only see it from their perspective. In the heat of battle, you're only seeing it from your point of view. There are two sides to most arguments that couples engage in. And typically, and this is a very important thing that is said by Andrew Christensen, who is a very well-known relationship uh, researcher, but in particular, he's a clinical psychologist that has developed one of the most evidence-based couple therapies called Integrative Behavioral Couple Therapy. And they even have an online version of that program called Our Relationship that has been headed up by one of his uh, former students that's now become, in his own right, you know, uh, an expert in this area, Brian Doss at the University of Miami. It's called Our Relationship um, and people are, are worth checking it out. It's a, it's a low cost program that people can get into that helps them try to get unstuck in their core relationship issues. And it takes them through a series of modules that, that they can work through either individually or as couples to help them identify where are they getting stuck on and why. There's a few things that I would say about, uh, about the point that you just raised. And mind you, Andrew Christensen was one of the people who's done the most work on demand withdrawal conflict pattern because he was seeing it so much in the couples he was dealing with. One of the things that I would say generally about uh, engaging in conflict is the reason that it turns nasty, whether it's demand withdrawal or even the other one that I said, negative hostility, where one attacks the other and it just escalates and gets out of control, is what happens is that you make the issue the partner rather than the relationship issue itself. Now, some would say, well, I can't, I can't disentangle them. Uh, the partner is the issue, but the majority of the time, the partner is not the only thing that's the issue. There is an issue, and what you may be concerned about is your partner's behavior around that, but typically you yourself are not perfect, and you've probably got some responsibilities around how this goes down as well. So the first thing that I would say to people is when conflict arises, focus on the issue rather than the partner, because the minute that you do that, you minimize the attack or the criticism on the partner, which minimizes them coming back to either attack you or to withdraw, right? That's the first thing that I would say. Some tend to say, well, a good way to kind of start these conversations is rather than saying, you know, you are the problem or you don't listen to me, right? You just don't listen to me. Is to turn around and use statements that soften that a little bit by saying, well, I feel like when I'm talking uh, you know, that you're not listening. I'm not saying that you don't listen. I'm saying that from my perspective, how I feel is that I don't listen. Now, there's a statute of limitations around that because some people, the idea of framing things from an I feel statement when they don't normally talk about emotions and want to talk about feelings is a really hard thing to do. But I think for those that are able to do that, just pull away from the need to go at the partner again, talk about it from your perspective. We'll start by saying something, look, from where I stand or from the way that I look at it, you know, this, this is how I think about it. What you can turn around and say 
and this can help kind of buffer things. So, you know, if you think that I'm completely wrong, or if you think that there's not even some uh, merit to what it is that I'm saying, then tell me otherwise. You know, you can turn around and say, you know, isn't there at least some some reality to what I'm saying? You notice what I'm saying here? I'm not saying that all the time you do this. It might be sometimes. Can you help me work out what the hell's going on here? Because often what couples also do is they tend to use absolute terms in their relationships. You never do something. You always do this. You know, it's, it's typically not never and always. It's typically not those extremes. We tend to sit somewhere in between. That's one thing that I would say. Another thing that I would say is if, um, you know, particular couples are discussing something and it is starting to get someone heated, you can call a timeout. Some people laugh and scoff at the idea of a timeout. They go timeout or they'll say timeout. We never have timeouts. Yeah, that's part of your problem. You don't. And, and you can, but the thing is you've got to develop a bit of a rule around that. Like you could have a conversation to say, look, here's, here's a really constructive way to go about something. Look, whenever we talk about something, it always just, it's never resolved. We both come away really upset with one another. Can we at least set a ground rule that if we're talking about something and it looks like it's starting to take off and we're raising our voices that we just have a time out there and we just come back to it when we come down. Now there's though the very important component of what I've just said. You have to turn around and make a commitment that you can come back and talk about. Otherwise, it becomes very convenient to call a timeout and then never raise it again. It's, it's essentially an avoidance ploy. So you need to keep each other accountable where you come back. And the reason that you want the timeout is because the timeout provides you an opportunity to kind of reduce the stress you're feeling at the time and help you to kind of regulate your emotions. Because when your emotions start to get out of control, it's very hard to be able to kind of control what can come out of your mouth, one, and two, for you to be able to problem solve. Remember, we were talking about that before. When you're stressed, when you're dealing with a lot of negative emotions, it takes up a lot of mental energy. You don't have mental energy left over to be able to problem solve or to try and see things from your partner's perspective. You're only seeing it from your perspective. You have no room for the partner. The other thing that I would say, and something that's, for example, noted in integrated behavioral couple therapy. And Andy Christensen makes a very, very good point about this, is there is often a want behind the whinge or behind the wine. And we're not saying that it's, it comes out as a whinge or a wine from the person saying it. But the person who's hearing it, the partner, hears it as a whinge or a wine. Oh, here we go, another problem. Here we go, another criticism. Let's come back to what was just said. There is often a want behind the whinge. What do I mean by that? When we're really upset and we're being driven by negative emotions such as anger, frustration, et cetera, when we respond, it comes, when we're disclosing our problem, it comes across in a very hard way. It's prickly. It, it, we come across as, as, as aggressive and as tough and as harsh. And so that's what the person is affronted with. And they go, whoa, here we go. But typically that harsh, tough response is a surface response. Underneath that anger and that frustration is often a more vulnerable side to us. Let me give you an example. You are just so selfish. All you ever do is work. You put all your effort into that. You love your work more than you love me. 
damn you and this work. I might as well not be with you because it's like I'm living in a relationship by myself anyway. Absolutely laid it on hard. That's a, that's a hard disclosure. And you turn around and go, what are you going to turn around and say? Well, wait a minute. And now you're going to start firing back. Or you're going to turn around and say, I've heard it before. Thanks very much. Um, guess what I'm doing? I'm going to go back in my office and I'm going to keep working. So that's the withdrawal side, right? That we just spoke about. Come back to that initial hard disclosure. Work, you're selfish, don't love me, not interested in this relationship. Typically, when you unpack that, the vulnerable side is saying, I'm lonely. And I'm questioning about how much it is that you love me. Because once upon a time, it wasn't like this. And, and when you do that, on some level, I, I feel rejected. Now, if I turned around and said that to you from the outset, I am sure that your response would be really, really different. The first thing you'd probably do is rather than avoiding, you'd probably broach and say, wait a minute, I don't want you feeling like that. What, that I don't love you? What's the matter with you? But then a conversation becomes open. Now both people are engaging. The one thing that I would say is trying to rephrase or to step back from that hard disclosure and those hard negative emotions that are driving something and to think about it from what are those emotions really telling you deep down? What's the vulnerability can be a really important thing to do. And you, uh, you may not do it in the heat of battle. Like it probably doesn't even come to your mind, but just even planting that seed and saying, so what's this really about? What's this really about? It's not about the work per se. It's about you feeling lonely. It's about you feeling that your partner, you're having doubts around their love, maybe around their, their, their affection for you, maybe. I, I don't know, it could be any of those things. And you come back and you turn around and say to the partner, look, I know I was really angry at what I said, but here's the reason that I, that I was so angry. And then you turn around and you give the kind of soft disclosure. The issue is to be able to do that requires huge presence of mind. It requires huge trust in the partner because the minute that you make yourself vulnerable that way, you open yourself up to risk. Risk is that your partner could ridicule you. Your partner may, may turn around and say, you're an idiot for talking about this stuff. You know, they invalidate that vulnerability. So you just are left out there hanging. Or now your partner knows your pain points and might try to manipulate you on those things. So to be honest, to be able to engage in those kind of soft disclosures, there does need to be some degree of high trust and commitment in the relationship. Because commitment means that you have a long-term goal for the relationship. So if you behave in a bunch of negative ways when your partner is being vulnerable, there are costs for you down the track because both of you determine each other's outcomes to some extent. The way I behave affects you, the way you behave affects me. And trust is really about having confidence about how someone is going to behave in the future based on how they behaved earlier. So for example, if you've been vulnerable at other times and your partner has met that vulnerability by kind of leaning in towards you in a way where they've been kind of caring and understanding, you know what you're gonna get if after that kind of really harsh, nasty way of interacting you come back and say wait a minute all of this is coming from a place where you know i kind of am feeling a bit fragile right now i'm feeling like you know you love work more than you love me i, I really feel like i'm unloved right now okay then you know how your partner may respond to that but if you've tried to be vulnerable and you don't get that response you're unlikely to do that which is where i think in those instances you know uh, being able to link in with, uh, with you know, a good therapist is really important because 
you can give the kind of tips we're talking about here and, and unpack this kind of stuff. But in the heat of battle, to be able to do it well requires you to have good presence of mind. It requires you to have some faith as to how the partner is going to respond. And you need to have a bank of experiences that tell you how this has played out in the past. And if you're not trusting of the partner, if you're worried about the viability of the relationship in the long term, if there's some fragility there right now, engaging in those kinds of discussions in the way we're talking about now in the person's mind is one that is of high risk. And if they haven't had experience at doing it, they go, where, where do I start? So tough, so tough. Um, but what you're saying really resonates in getting that third person mediator and someone with experience to be able to look in and start. Because often a, a lot of those things require a deep amount of insight into your own emotional state and into someone else's emotional state. And that's not a given. Absolutely, it does. No way. We assume that people have good insight of themselves. And look, people can, but under times of e extreme stress and sometimes when people are particularly vulnerable, it's easier to lose perspective. And it's not because it's a, it's, it's a criticism of the person. It's just the natural state. How much can you put up with and think clearly so that we do have those blind spots, sometimes more than others? What sorts of things can someone say if they are in a dynamic where they are not having healthy conflict? to entice, draw, take their partner to a therapy session with them? Because there's often a lot of resistance around going to see yeah, a therapist. Yeah, there is. Look, I think one of the places is, you know, the first thing is that if you say you're going to go and see a therapist, one of one of the issues that that raises in the other partner is, oh, you that's it, we've got problems. Even though the problems might already be there, it's like a formal acknowledgement that there's a problem, right? Oh, things are going downhill. That's one thing. The other thing is the reason that you're dragging me along is because you want to set me straight. I'm the problem. So this is going to be all about everything that I do wrong, right? Um, so worry that the, that the therapist is going to side with, you know, with the person who's dragging people to therapy. Mind you, sometimes the reason that someone wants to take their partner to therapy is because they do have that motive. We need to go to therapy because we need to sort out what's going on with you. It's all you right? They might even frame it that way. Well, do you want a bigger threat? I mean, seriously, who's going to sign up and say, sure, let's go. So I can be the butt of everyone's criticism. Let's do it now. Get on the phone now. No one's going to do that. Um, but uh, the question is about what is the motivation for therapy? There can be two motivations, to be honest, for therapy. And a therapist is probably looking at these things when they're, they're dealing with couples. One is that the reason that you're going to therapy is because deep down, you really love this person. Things aren't going so well right now. And you don't want it to stay like that. You want the relationship to become positive. You want to continue to have a relationship with this person, despite all the difficulties. And you, you, know, you both acknowledge that you're having trouble to make it work. So you both kind of need help. Like that's a pretty benign way of thinking about it. You know, it's interesting that when we think about different aspects of our life, sporting, for example, the sporting world, you know, going to uh, and working with a coach is seen as a really good thing. Mm. But when it comes to mental health issues, when it comes to relationship issues, going to see someone, it means there's a problem. Well, typically the reason why someone needs coaching in, in the sporting world is because either they need corrective instruction on particular kind of biomechanics that are failing them, or they need to leverage they get their game to play a bigger game. Right. So, you know, we can use that analogy here. Um, in that in that respect is what I would say. So that's one way that I would that I would look at it. The other reason why uh, you know couples kind of go to therapy and the thing that the therapist is picking up on is maybe this relationship has run its course. Maybe it has. 
you know, some people say, well, all things in life have a season. And maybe this has had its season. It's had its purpose. It's had its time. But for whatever reason, it needs to end. Then the job of the therapist is actually to help the couple end it in a way that's constructive, that's amicable, especially when the ending of that relationship involves particular responsibilities that they need to continue to share. For example, like child custody and stuff like that, right? Or maybe it's assets or, you know, family members or, you know, whatever else it happens to be. So that's, that's another thing that, that a therapist is looking at. But, you know, that's another reason that couples can speak to one another. You know, they may be questioning about the longevity of the relationship. It may not be that the, re, the, the frame is around, you know, I still really want to be with you and I want to, you know, I want this, you know, to get better. It might be where they're really at a point where saying, I think we've got to go see someone because I'm not sure if we will continue to be together. Um, now, that's more threatening. But if the reason that you're still wanting to go is because you want to know whether there's a chance, you want to know if it's salvageable. And I want to put in that effort because I at least want to know that we tried. Then there's still a there's still a kind of positive message in that. I'm not saying I want to renege. I'm saying that we're vulnerable. I'm not sure where it's going, but I want us to get some help to see if we can recorrect this. I think that's you know those those are the kinds of things that would be particularly constructive in in, in laying it out to a partner. Another way that's spoken about, for example, in the in the our relationship program, and that's spoken about in integrative behavioral couple therapy as an example, is really about how you can become unstuck when the relationship is not going well. Now that's a pretty benign way of thinking about it, but it's actually a, a really constructive and true way. You know, you can turn and say to your partner, "Look, we just seem to be stuck." stuck with this kind of, you know, these relationship problems that aren't going anywhere. What if we could go to someone who could help us get unstuck, right? That's not about blame, you know, and notice that it's about our relationship, you know, about how we need to become unstuck. I'm not making it all about you. I'm keeping it about the us. And as an interesting point, we know that couples that talk in we statements a lot, our goals, what we do, often have more satisfying relationships than making it about me versus you because they see themselves more as this kind of, you know, team, they have this kind of shared identity. So, you know, th those kinds of things can be helpful and constructive going forward for those who want to seek out and work with the, you know, with the therapist as such. I think there's some really great tools to mine in there. Uh, I want to be conscious of your time as well. Um, yeah, I, sure. I think we've hit the end of our contract, uh, but look, I just want to say thank you, Professor Jerry, for your, your thoughts. I'm sure yeah, no a lot of people are going to take wisdom from, from this. Um, and I'll include in the, the show notes a lot of those resources that you pointed out. Yeah, no worries. My absolute pleasure. Okay. Well, that's it for today. We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation with Professor Jerry Karatsis. If you would like to connect in with a couples therapist, there are plenty on talklink.com.au and they're available to see clients straight away. Keep well and see you soon.